This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Scott Radley sitting in for Bill Kelly. Why are you here today? Because you're going to hear us talking about the strike with the education workers. Well, strike situation, let's call it, with the education workers. What is going on with that? We're going to be talking about the fall economic statement from Christian Freeland, the mini budget, as some are calling it. What does it say? How is it going to affect us? And the Emergency Act hearing continues on. Some very interesting things, police possibly leaking information, money flowing in. Has it reached the level, though, that warrants the Emergencies Act? We'll get into all that stuff. Stick around. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. First up today, though, let us get to a good friend of the show, someone we love having on here. Uh, His name is John Best. He's publisher of the Bay Observer. He joins us now. John, good morning. How are you? I'm great, Scott. Nice to be with you. Nice to chat with you. I don't get to do this too often. Bill hogs all of your attention, which is <laughs> which is good because you do a great job on his show. So I'm glad to be in here today. Uh, nice. Lots to get to. Just before we get going, I want to play a clip from Stephen Lecce, who was, the, uh, of course, the Ontario Education Minister. This is what he had to say yesterday. No one wants to be here, but we will never waver from our promise to do whatever it takes to keep kids in class. Pretty uh, straightforward comment, John, and that seems to be essentially the motivation behind everything that's happening with the notwithstanding clause is, in your mind, is keeping kids in class. That that basic fact, just keeping kids in class, does that warrant everything that's going on? I, I think, uh, first of all, I think he's a bit disingenuous by saying that it's that the motivation is keeping kids in class. That That's certainly an important part of it. I think the real motivation here is to send a message to the teachers. Uh, they they want to show a very tough, uh, unyielding stand because they know that once, however this matter with the uh, support workers gets settled, the next, next up is the teachers, and that's the big ticket item. Uh, that could cost the government a lot of money. So I think what's really going on here is uh, uh, a bit of uh, saber rattling. Well, not a bit of saber rattling. Some fairly intensive saber rattling uh, against uh, these uh, these uh, support workers. Who really, uh, when you look at their average salary, it's uh, you know it's it's pretty bad compared to um, obviously what teachers get, but it's it's really not very good in terms of even the private sector which is rare when you're dealing with public sector workers. Um, just before uh, the, the show started, Stephen Lecce put out a, a statement saying that he's going to the, uh, he's taking this matter to the Ontario Labour Board, which struck me as kind of weird because they, they've passed the notwithstanding clause to, to uh, basically cancel any court action. Now they're appearing in front of a, a legal tribunal. Mm. Uh, so there's a bit of irony there. But uh, anyway, I, I, I think a lot of this has to do with fending off teachers. And uh, unfortunately, these support workers, their contract came up first and we're seeing what we're seeing. I, John, I, I think you're bang on on that one. The teachers' contracts expired in August, so the negotiations have started. And I mean, I thought this from day one, when you're asking for 11%, now nobody ever knew, everyone knew they weren't going to get 11%, but when you're asking for huge raises... You knew, you know, the teachers' unions are in the background going, huh, let's see how this one pans out. Because if you get 5%, is it not reasonable to expect that the teachers' unions would ask for the same or expect the same? Absolutely. Or more. Or more. 
And so, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sympathetic to the education workers, the support workers are talking about for sure. And so maybe, you know, but you, you get the teachers unions to sign a document saying, ah, you know what, we're not going to hold you to any precedent. We're just, we're going to be happy with 2%. Uh, of course, that would also mean pigs would fly. But yeah. I mean, if you could do that and avoid somehow setting the precedent, I think maybe you could get a deal here. I just, as for the reasons you just said, I... I don't know that the government is going to relent at all here out of fear of sending a message that they've got open pockets. Well, they they have good communications advice, uh, either uh, on staff or when they get into a crisis like this, they go to the market and they hire, you know, a navigator or somebody that's that's got crisis communication experience. Uh, they know fully well that the optics of beating up on these uh, support workers is terrible. Uh, but they, it's a kind of, a, I think, a calculated risk. Uh, they're early in a new majority term. Uh, number one, they don't have to face the public for another four years. The, uh, nobody believes that the liberals would be ready to form a government. They're going to need more than one election before they can get their act together, if ever. Uh, so a very weak and divided opposition, the NDP looking for a leader, the liberals looking for a leader. So the political side is is relatively secure. Um, so I think what they're saying is, we'll, we know we look bad, but we're going to take it for now because uh, we just can't afford to get into open-ended contracts with uh, with our education workers. John, if if you and I are both right on this, and I'm more believing you'd be right, <laughs> but nonetheless, if we're both right on this, what would be the political benefit or disaster of putting out a statement saying this is because we can't pay the teachers this much and don't want to create a precedent and, and simply to send the message to people we're not trying to beat up on people who are making less we just can't we're doing this to protect you the taxpayers from a massive payout what would happen if they did that you mean telling the truth um well <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it may well be, uh, you know, normally when, when you're in a crisis uh, communications issue like this, you, you start off with, with plan A, but you, you're always holding back, uh, you know, statements and, and tactics uh, to see how the, you know, as you see how the, the uh, situation is unfolding. So it's quite possible you will hear that uh, somewhere down the road. It's, uh, it's a fairly reasonable uh, position to take. Um, and I suppose they're counting a little bit on the fact that, you know, the, the, the teachers, unfortunately, even though we, we love them, uh, there's always an element of uh, the public is never really fully on side with teachers. Um, you know, teachers uh, make teachers unions. They're, yes, they're a I, union. Yeah. And, and, you know, the idea, you know, so there's always that little undercurrent going on. It's been going on for as long as uh, teachers formed unions. So it's a, it's a it's an awkward situation, but I think the government has just decided to hunker down, take the heat, uh, try to get a, a cheaper deal. I mean, these are conservatives after all, so they they do actually care about fiscal matters as well. The government is is beset on all sides for more money. Uh, the healthcare system uh, clearly is is in crisis, and and probably part of the solution is going to be a large expenditure of money. Uh, you've got this situation with education going on, uh, infrastructure deficits, uh, interest rates, uh, you know, up until this year, 
you could you could borrow hundreds of millions of dollars for infrastructure because the interest rates were so low. Now we're looking at interest rates that that make even borrowing money for infrastructure expensive. So it's it's a really uh, challenging time fiscally for any government. And I guess what we're seeing is the beginning of uh, cracking down. Unfortunately, it's being done with a group that are probably underpaid at this point and really do deserve something more than what they're getting. Uh, you know what, on that point though, and I think many people would agree with you that they would be sympathetic to this particular group and it, it happens to be a bad way that this has broken, that they're the ones who it looked like end up being the sacrificial lambs in this one because you can't give in. But did the union here make an error by coming in with the number of, I think, 11.7%, which to, John, to anybody in this province, unless you're one of the rarest of the rare, private sector especially, who are losing jobs, have lost time, lost work during COVID, have lost businesses. When you come in with a demand of 11.7% over three years, even if you're starting from a lower amount, was that an error because everybody immediately says, are you insane? 11.7% times three, you're crazy. Yeah, they were obviously trying to do the catch up in one in one bite. And uh, it, if we look at what's happened today, it, it's not working. Uh, they're on the lawn in front of Queens Park and uh, they're off the payroll temporarily. So yeah, it's uh, th- that probably was a bit of overreach. And uh, frankly, uh, what it probably did was was give the government the ability to move in. Like we went from, you know, sort of having talks to this in a matter of, you know, three or four days. The, the hammer came down very suddenly. And I think a lot of it probably had to do with the fact that the government knew that the number being asked for uh, by QP was uh, a number that, that we just haven't seen in labor negotiations in, in decades. Well, and, and, you know, we're short on time, unfortunately, but one of the other things I've wondered about this is how much do you think public opinion matters in these strikes with a public union? And and the reason is because in the past, if the public starts to put all kinds of pressure on the government, the government generally capitulates to some degree. In this case, again, I, I, I wonder how sympathetic, despite the fact that, as you said, they are lower paying 33, 34, 35% increase over three years. I, I do wonder if the public is sympathetic to those numbers. I, and I, I wonder how, it, how much it has to change or move. And I know they have moved, but I wonder how much it has to move before the public says, there's a number that I can fully support and get behind. Government, do it. I think, I think the real issue on this strike will be whether or not the government can keep the schools open. And uh, if they can keep the schools open and people don't have to find uh, childcare resources and scramble, uh, this strike could go on for a long time. If, uh, you know, the the withdrawal of services makes the schools that, you know, because it's, uh, uh, you know, the uh, caretakers and so on are are part of this group. And if the schools became, let's say, unusable because of just a pileup of garbage and and so on, and the schools have to be closed, then I think the public will get uh, really fired up. And that's where the government will start to lose ground. Because at the end of the day, uh, when all these groups saying it's all about the kids, it's all about the kids for the parents, for sure. They're probably the only ones where it really is all about the kids. And uh, if if they you know if, if their kids can't go to school, uh, 
uh, we're back into kind of the pandemic conditions again, and and it'll be the government that'll feel the heat on that for sure. I wish we had a lot more time. I always enjoy chatting with John Best uh, from the Bay Observer. Thank you for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Pleasure to be with you, Scott. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Rich man's world, money, money, money. Yeah, it's a lot of talk about money these days in the world, unsurprisingly, considering the challenges that we are facing. Scott Radley in for Bill Kelly today, by the way. A lot of challenges for a lot of people. These are difficult times in rising interest rates and inflation causing difficulties. Well, we had a mini budget or a fall economic statement. Take your pick, which one you like better. Uh, yesterday, the federal government, Christian Freeland, the finance minister, put that one out. A uh, number of things in there that were really interesting. Some designed to help some people, some uh, larger plans. Um, let's get into this. Uh, Karina Gould is the MP for Burlington. She's the Minister of Families, Children and Social Development. She joins us now. Thank you for the time today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Great to be with you, Scott. Because uh, you do seem to be rather the perfect person to talk about this, not just because of your Burlington connection, but also your job title. Uh, this this broadly covers a lot of the things that your title would allude to with um, with families and children and social development. I um, want to get into a few of those things right off the bat here. And one of the big ones that was brought up yesterday is that interest charges on student debt is going to be waived permanently now. Why? Oh, well, so I'm glad you raised that because this is, you know, one of the kind of centerpieces of the fall economic statement. But it's also something that, you know, we've come to recognize is a huge barrier for students getting ahead and getting started. So when you graduate from, you know, an apprenticeship, college, university, and you've got a lot of student debt, it can really hinder, um, you know, your your you're getting started in life. And so um, we've recognized that, you know, this is just one way to help students out um, in in tough times. Um, but it's a really important uh, thing that we can do as a federal government uh, to not increase that burden uh, on students who, you know, are getting their first job, getting, you know, their economic footing and uh, really, you know, starting to make a life for themselves. Is this for anybody who has any federal student debt remaining or just for those who are in school now or who have just recently got like who, who qualifies for this? So this will take effect um, as of April of next year. Um, and this is for uh, folks who have um, uh, like getting into like will be getting into student um, loans moving forward. Okay, so it's not for historic student debt that still exists, it's for going forward, anyone collecting it beginning now? Yeah, correct. Okay, okay. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, I almost choked there. Uh, not because of your comment. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Um, a doubling of the GST credit for six months was also put out there. Mm -hmm. uh, again, I asked the question, why? Yeah, so, well, as you mentioned in your opening comments, um, you know, these are these are tough times uh, right now with inflation. Um, you know, economically, Canada is is doing quite well. I mean, in terms of, you know, our GDP growth, in terms of, you know, lowest unemployment rate uh, in Canadian history. But the cost of living is is quite high. And um, provide, doubling the GST tax credit is one way that we can help uh, lower income families uh, and individuals 
pay for those, you know, high costs of basic necessities, food, shelter, etc., um, that will have a meaningful impact. And actually, the G- the doubling of the GST tax credit takes place today. So um, anyone who is eligible will be receiving it either in their bank account or in their mailbox as of today. Uh, and that will happen over the next six months. And this is real money to help families because we know that, you know, the price of food has gone up, um, you know, the, well, the price of everything really has gone up. And so this is one way that we can help families deal with these, you know, difficult economic times that people are feeling when they're trying to, you know, pay their their basic necessities each month. Uh, there are a number of other things, a top up to the Canada housing benefit uh, plan to cover dental expenses for low income kids under 12. One other one that I don't understand perfectly well, maybe you can help with this one, advance payments on Canada workers benefit. So eligible workers don't have to wait for tax time to get this. Can yeah. I, are you able to explain that one? Yeah, that's a really important one. So the way that the Canada workers benefit works right now is it's kind of like an after tax thing that happens um, at the end of the year. So it's for low income workers. It's about, you know, 3 million Canadians that get the Canada workers benefit right now. But it's, you know, it's about twenty, about $2,400 that comes at the end of the year. But the change that we're making is that this is actually going to happen quarterly now. And so it will actually help in more real time. And um, it will make uh, about 4.2 million Canadians eligible. So these are people who are working full time, but they might be working in very low wage jobs. And it's just that extra bit of help that you know helps make ends meet. And the fact that we can do this um, in advance, as opposed to at the end of the year, will just you know be that help in real time and make that difference now. There is uh, the number that I read. Uh, there is about thirty point six billion dollars in new spending in this fall financial statement, and. The flip side to what we've just been talking about is that a lot of economists have pointed out that one of the big reasons that we're facing, not the only reason, but one of the big reasons we're facing inflation so badly these days is too much money in the economy. Just even two weeks ago, Krista Freeland herself said flooding the country with government support would be like pouring fuel on the fire. So is adding $30 billion, $31 billion almost more not exacerbating the problem we're trying to solve? No, because it is targeted to uh, the most vulnerable and lower income Canadians who are spending on basic necessities. So, um, you know, they would be buying groceries no matter what, but now it enables them to be able to afford buying groceries. The dental benefit is a great example. I don't think we can say to parents, you know, sending your kids to the dentist is causing inflation. Those are just things that they would like to be able to do, but they aren't because um, they don't have the financial means to do so. And same with the Canada housing benefit. You know, that's $500 that's going to low-income renters that's going directly to paying the cost of their rent. If we were, you know, sending out money uh, indiscriminately uh, to all Canadians, yeah, that would be inflationary for sure. But we've been really deliberate and targeted to go to those who have been hardest hit by inflation to help them cover basic costs. And then the other um, investments that we're putting in are, you know, to support our ambitious immigration targets. 
as I mentioned at the outset, we have the lowest um, unemployment rate in Canadian history. We have massive labor shortages, um, but we don't have more Canadians to fill those jobs. Canadians who want to work are are enable are are working these days. So we need to bring in newcomers to Canada to help fill some of those jobs. But we need to make sure that we're supporting it. But that's an investment in people in the economy that pays dividends um, in response. Some of the other spending measures that we're doing are to put us on a level playing field with some of the um, Inflation Reduction Act measures that uh, President Biden brought in when it comes to investing in a clean and green economy in the future. Um, Again, these are important investments that are going to attract investment to Canada, uh, that are going to create great jobs, that are going to increase revenues, um, that ultimately are going to more than pay for themselves. So we were really deliberate and thoughtful about what new spending we put in place to make sure that it was not inflationary, that it was supporting the basic needs of our most vulnerable people in Canada, but that it was also setting us on a path to further growth. The money to do this, and this again comes because we learned that the government had um, unanticipatedly better revenues than we had, than they had expected. The irony of this, as some have pointed out, is that in all likelihood, a great amount of that increased revenue is the result of inflation. If an item was $10 before, tax on that would be X. But if it was now $12, you get more tax. If inflation goes down, if the Bank of Canada is successful, and inflation goes down, that would also then drop revenues. Do we not risk by adding more programs, making these unsustainable or making us have a larger debt or deficit down the road? You know, it's a really good and I think fair question. Um, the, The response, though, is that by attracting and making Canada a better place to do these investments, to um, encourage and spur economic growth. Uh, We want to, you know, keep growing government revenues because our economy is growing. And I would say that's one of the key differences. You know, what we saw um, when, you know, the Conservatives were in power back in 2008, instead of, you know, making investments in the economy, they went on an austerity measures. But what that ended up doing was it ended up cutting um, government revenues and government services. And we're saying, actually, you know what, in tough times, we need to be there for Canadians to help them get through these tough times. And so that's why, you know, with the GST measures, for example, that's six months. It's not permanent, but it's six months to help get through some of these difficult times for our lowest income and most vulnerable Canadians. Um, But at the same time, we're making important investments into our economy that are going to put it on a really solid foundation to keep growing into the future. Because, you know, we believe in a country that takes care of each other. We believe that um, you know, all Canadians should have access to these basic services and basic supports. Um, and so the way for us to do that is to have a strong economy, grow it, um, so that we have a place where everyone can succeed. Do we really think, though, that these programs, you mentioned the six months, will only be in place for six months, that they will not become permanent? I mean, one of them is the student debt uh, interest relief is permanent, but do you believe that this will only be a six-month thing until we ride out this wave, or do you think these will be permanent programs now? Well, I think the GST tax credit will be six months because we're already starting to see 
inflation come down in Canada. Um, and so, you know, we anticipate that that will continue. Obviously, you know, no one has a crystal ball, so we'll have to kind of, you know, keep a very close eye on that. Um, but, you know, that's an important measure that will help um, with, you know, inflation for more vulnerable Canadians. Um, the, you know, the issue on student loans, I think this is just really good and smart policy. Um, it's, you know, saying that we believe that uh, young people in Canada should get an education and that we want to support them to do that. And we also want to make sure that, you know, we're doing our part to get them started on the right foot uh, once they finish that education uh, financially and, and economically. Um, you know, the Canada dental benefit, yeah, that, that will be permanent. Um, and again, that's the right thing because, you know, we also know that um, dental health is fundamental to preventative uh, overall health. And so we actually know that this is an important investment that's you know, going to keep, quite frankly, kids out of the emergency room, which is way more expensive than getting preventative dental care um, in the long run. And you know, I think this is a really good thing that um, you know, we're, we're going to see have a really positive impact on our healthcare system in the long run. I do have to ask you about one other thing that is out of this realm a little bit, although it was up, it was in the um, the statement yesterday. Uh, a couple months ago, Blacklock's Reporter, which is, in, for those who don't know, an Ottawa uh, online paper, for lack of a better description, reported that CBC paid out $30 million, $30 million in bonuses during the pandemic. Yesterday, CBC was given $42 million more in this statement because of problems during the pandemic. So if, if it wasn't doing well enough in the pandemic that it needs this money, why was it paying out $30 million in bonuses? And if it was doing well enough, is this good use of taxpayers' money? This is the kind of stuff that I think people look at and they go, why are we feeding this over and over if they're paying out these giant bonuses? And it's CBC is just one example, but it was one that came up yesterday. Well, look, CBC, um, you know, is is response is it's a separate entity um, from the government, although obviously it is publicly funded. And I think there's tremendous value in having um, a public broadcaster in Canada like the CBC. Um, and, you know, I've always been someone who's been very supportive of um, the media and making sure we have that diversity of voices out there and making sure that we can have access to um, good quality information. Um, I can't comment specifically on the CBC bonus issue because I'm actually just not familiar enough with it. But I think, you know, our government has been very clear that we want to ensure that we have, um, you know, a good public broadcaster um, that is available for Canadians from coast to coast to coast um, on radio, on TV, uh, on the web uh, that can provide, you know, good quality information. Um, and, you know, we've been very supportive of journalism writ large um, because, you know, in this era of, you know, unfortunately mis and disinformation and, um, you know, false news that can spread very rapidly online, I think it's really important that we have um, quality journalistic outlets and journalists who can, you know, make sure that the, the truth and the facts get out there. Karina Gould, MP for Burlington, uh, Minister of Families, Children and Social Development. We very much appreciate you taking time today. Thank you for this. Thank you. My pleasure. Take care. That is, uh, th as I say, that was relating to the economic statement yesterday. It was, look, there are things in there that um, depending, like so many other things, 
And we're going to be talking about this a little later as we sort of, there's a lot of things that sort of tie together in a bow here. Uh, unexpectedly, we, there wasn't really a plan, but you will see, even as we go through the day today, we mentioned already when we were talking with John Best about the situation with the education workers. We are talking about the economic statement. We will later be talking about the Emergencies Act hearing. The one common denominator in all of this, I believe, is that depending which side of the political aisle you are on, you are going to either see brilliant decisions that help everybody or giant problems that are squandering things. I, I, I would bet money, lots of money, and I don't gamble, I would bet lots of money that those who lean left are outraged today by what's happened at Queen's Park. I would bet equal amounts of money that those who lean right are outraged about what happened with the Emergencies Act and probably don't like some of the things that were in this economic statement. There are some things, as I, we've been talking about, some things designed to help families that I think many people could probably say, yeah, okay, I, I can see the point of that. And there are other things that I think people, depending again on your political stripe, would look and say, why are we doing this? It is a, it, it, we have, you know, we point to the states and we point to Americans and we say they are so divided. They are, we're not quite there, but we're getting closer. We, we, because I really believe that we are in a lot of ways unable to see pros or cons based on our political leaning. We are, we are locked into that view. And so this economic statement, we talked about some of the things off the top that were positive. We talked about some of the things that are negative, depending on which way your leaning is. I'm guessing you were probably way more tuned in to one part of that than the other. That's just how we are. That's just how we are. If you tend to lean left, I'm sure you were listening to the first parts, first parts more carefully and all the things that are going out and saying and nodding and saying, yeah, that's really, that's excellent. That's going to be very helpful. If you lean right, you were listening to the second part going, yeah, why are we spending all this money on a completely separate? And I asked about the CBC. I, I, I do, you know, to Ms. Gould's answer, I, I, I think we all support good media. The, you know, the issue is if they're paying out $30 million in bonuses and then say they don't have enough money, they need $42 million more. That's, that's, that's not her realm. I, I understand that that is not her area. She's the minister of families, children, and social development. Nonetheless, it does seem like that's what, that's one of those ones where you shake your head and say, well, maybe if you hadn't sent out those $30 million in bonuses, you wouldn't have need more taxpayers money. That's, that was, that's my look at that one. If you're, if you're needing $42 million because you've fallen behind, how have you earned $30 million in bonuses? Bonuses are supposed to be for exceptional work. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Emergencies Act hearing has continued on in Ottawa. It's still going on. I think we've reached about the halfway point now. And I don't think anyone could argue that it's not been interesting. I think there's been an awful lot of things in there that are pretty interesting, pretty fascinating. We learned in the last few days of lots of money being involved in this. We learned about 
well, suggestions that police officers were tipping off protesters, sympathetic police officers. We've heard about other things as well. I want to bring in Phil Gursky. He is president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. He is a distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program. He is a former CSIS analyst. He joins us now. Phil, thanks for this today. Hey, Scott. How are you? I'm terrific. Look, so many things to get through in the time we have here. Let's start with the money. Because, you know, I, I remember back in the old Woodward and Bernstein days, follow the money, that was the thing. So, you know, let's follow the money here. There was a lot of money that was being involved and that was flowing around in this. Eh? There was a lot of money that suddenly landed in bank accounts and in envelopes and in GoFundMes and everything else for these protesters. Yeah, there, there certainly was. I mean, I was see- seeing some reports about, what, several millions of dollars, and but there's some kind of... Uh you know, uncertainty whether the money was actually ever accessed or used, which is really interesting as well. I guess what it showed is that there are a lot of people who felt that this particular movement, as we want to call it, deserved their financial support. And so, it is, it, again, I think it shows that there are a lot of people beyond that core, you know, of individuals that are, you know, brought down on Ottawa to a stop who thought that what they were standing for was worth, was worth their support. So, that is, if you talk to the outset times, Gone about how many interesting things we found out. That was a very interesting aspect. This particular, you know, debacle, um, I guess you would call it, in Ottawa history. Well, I mean, there there are suggestions. There was a story. There was testimony that there was one. We don't, I don't know that we ever learned who it was, but one giant donor who wanted to give a huge amount of money. But it seems that by and large, for the most part, by and large, these were smaller individuals who were donating this individuals or businesses i guess but smaller donors this was you know the word grassroots get used a lot and maybe it's a Mm -hmm. little bit cliche but this sounds like in a lot of ways this was a grassroots fundraising effort i think it was and i think there's a bigger implication here scott and that is that if you recall when the emergencies act was brought in a lot of funds were frozen but then they couldn't get access to and that that's a pretty powerful tool that the federal government has when it comes to saying you can't get access to your money, you know, when it comes to, for example, financing terrorist groups, and as you said in your, in your um, you know, your outside, I do work in counterterrorism and thesis, you know, if, if we find out that you're supporting something which is a listed terrorist entity, for example, you can be charged with a criminal code. So, I'm, again, I'm not putting the T word beside what happened in Ottawa, but all I'm saying is that, you know, the state does have powers to, to um, forbid you to use certain funds, but I would hope that that particular tool, which is a very powerful one, is only used in instances where something really, really dangerous is afoot. And I'm not convinced that what was, what was happening in Ottawa was all that dangerous. I, I was looking this up because I wasn't sure of what the rules were. And maybe you can tell me if I get anything wrong here, but I think I'm right. Our rules, our laws do not permit foreign donors to give money to Canadian political campaign. So I, I, you know, if I live in the States, if I'm an American citizen, I can't contribute to the liberal government, liberal uh, party campaign. However, I can donate to either Canadian charities or Canadian mm-hmm. causes through things like GoFundMe. Mm-hmm. So when you look at this one, was this a political operation or was this closer to what someone might term a charity or cause kind of thing? Because I think that has a big People have talked about all this foreign money was flowing in. Well, right. in certain circumstances, foreign money is not allowed. In other circumstances, it's very much allowed. Where does this fall? Well, very much the latter. I mean, you know, whatever you want to call a freedom convoy, and it was a real dog part of the actors, as I'm sure you're well aware, it most certainly was not a political party. Uh, was it a political cause? You could argue the answer is yes. Uh, unless I misread you know, what you decided as the legislation, 
it's, it's the actual foreign funding of political parties like the Liberals, the Conservatives, NDP, etc. None of that applies here, to the best of my knowledge. Now, I'm not going to call what happened to Ottawa charity. That's going a little bit too far. But it certainly was a cause, and, you, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I myself have given to causes around the world that are outside the Canadian jurisdiction, and, you know, I'm assuming I haven't broken, you know, Swedish law or, you know, Afghan law when I've done that. <laughs> It'd be a pretty hard argument to make that what was, you know, the money coming in for this would have been construed as supporting a political party in Canada. Again, if you want to call it a political movement or phenomenon or whatever, that's a more interesting road to go down. But I can't see this, that the first part of that law that you cited applying in this particular case. Okay, but what if, let's go back however many years, what, what year, I can't even remember now, it's too early in the morning still, What the, the referendum, <laughs> our last referendum in Quebec, let's say that suddenly millions of dollars had poured in from France to support the separatists in Quebec the last time we had a referendum. Would that have been seen as okay? It, because that, again, would be similarly not a party, but it's clearly a political cause. Would that not be similar? Wow. You've really thrown a curveball on a Friday morning, haven't you? Um, that's an interesting argument. Now, I'm going to bring in something a little bit different here. So, yeah, as I said, I worked at CSIS for 15 years. Uh, under our legislation, the CSIS Act, was, which was passed back in 84 when CSIS was created by the old Security Service, there's Section 2 tells what CSIS worries about, what its mandate allows it to cover. And in Section 2, there's a, a clause, Section 2B, which talks about foreign interference in Canadian affairs, which is a pretty broad term if you come to think of it. If, in fact, that millions have been coming in from France to help the separatist cause, you could argue that would be foreign interference. So, you know, is, is money for the Freedom Convoy foreign interference in Canadian affairs? That's an interesting argument, and I think I think you could probably argue both sides of that. And but it, it, it introduces a, a different wrinkle into the argument, in the sense that if in fact millions of dollars were coming into Canada to support it, that could potentially say to thesis, this this constitutes two B under your act, which says we want you to look into it, and investigate it, and see exactly what's happening here. You, you know, you probably heard as well, Scott, recently this notion of Chinese PlayStations here in Canada. Yes, yes. That clearly is foreign interference. Uh, I think all of us would agree with that. This one's a little murkier, I would say, but it certainly isn't out of the realm of possibility that it would constitute foreign interference and ergo something that our security services would be taking a very, very close look at. One more thing on this. Foreign interference, does foreign interference have to be in the form of a foreign government or can it be just, again, a bunch of foreign citizens who by their own choice donate to this? Because those are two very different things. They are, and, and, to be all, and I'll be honest with you, I don't know that the distinction is made there in the legislation, the way that the Act reads. Um, there are always definitions in legislation. I, I'm not up on what foreign interference is defined at in the CSIS Act, whether it states it has to be an actual state entity or it can be individual. So I, I, I'm sorry, I don't have a, a definitive answer for you. No, no, didn't, no forewarning that was coming up, so certainly no problem. <laughs> okay, let's move on to the next one, which... Um, I think no matter which side, honestly, of the political argument or the, the side of the convoy or not, somebody might be on, I do think that the suggestion that police were tipping off protesters might be widely seen as concerning. Because even if you believe in the convoy, I think you could certainly have it applied and say, yeah, but what if this was a political issue on the other side of the aisle? What if there was... You know, it was a conservative government that was in office and this was done. The idea that police were tipping off demonstrators or those involved, is this as concerning to you as it sounds it should be? 
In fact, this is the most concerning thing I've heard to date in this particular regard. Let me draw an analogy here, Scott. Um, you know, I've talked to you, and I think Bill, many times about, you know, terrorism uh, cases, plots that we're here in Canada. Can you imagine if, you know, CSIS or the RCB, and by the way, CSIS has also been named as, as an, a source of, of intelligence for the Freedom Convoy. Uh, my former organization, apparently somebody, and this, again, but I want to stress, these are allegations, right? Nothing's been a demonstration. Of course, absolutely. That's been, yep. But can you imagine if you were doing a counterterrorism investigation and uh, into a group that wanted to do something serious in Canada, and somebody from your organization told the terrorist cell, oh, by the way, guess what? Um, your cell's been infiltrated by, by human sources, and the human source's name is, is Joe Blow, and here's where he lives. Can you imagine how, how long Joe Blow's life would last after that? It wouldn't be worth a, a plug nickel, right? The fact that you had, the, again, allegations that law enforcement and even CSIS are passing information to these to the organizers or whomever is a very serious one. And if true, this is really, really bad. You know, I spent 32 years in the business, Scott, and you're allowed to have your own political opinions. It's, a, it's what a democracy is all about. But you're told from day one, you do not disclose information that you have received that is very sensitive in nature to anyone aside from those who are authorized to receive it. And I'm going to go on the limit and say this Freedom Convoy organizers are not authorized to receive intelligence from CSIS. So if this is, it turns out to be true, uh, yeah, this is very, very worrisome. I, I, I think the government has an obligation to get to the bottom of it, uh, who these people were, and if they are identified and it's shown definitively that they did do this, then as far as I'm concerned, they should be fired and possibly charged under, under the official secret act for passing unclassified information. Yeah, and the tricky part here is that whether, I mean, it is allegations, and we don't have names as far as I know yet. No one has brought forward a name or names yet. However, just the fact that this has come out, I think that there is going to be a fair segment of the public who is going to say, it happened. I, I don't know how you shove this genie back in the bottle. There are now going to be people who are always going to believe that the police were on board and the police were helping. That's a problem. Yeah, it is. And, you know, bringing it back to the CSIS angle, because like I said, CSIS has been implicated as well. CSIS doesn't get any, any good headlines. At the, that's not anyway, anytime. Uh, people think CSIS is evil, it's the devil incarnate, it does anything wrong. Uh, you know, this is one more blow to CSIS' reputation, as well as that of Ottawa. You know, Ottawa Police hasn't come up looking very well out of this thing. That was the OPP, the RCP, anybody. And you're right, allegations are allegations, but in many people's minds, conclusions have been drawn. And this is going to simply reaffirm their conviction that our law enforcement and security intelligence agencies are either incompetent or are, you know, jumping into bed with, with people that, that, you know, try to, again, alleging to overthrow Canada, you know, subversion to overthrow the government, which I think is a problem. That's a whole other issue. Um, no, it's not going to help. And, and so these organizations are going to have to work even harder to try and resurrect or rebuild a reputation amongst Canadians. So it's a, it's a, it's, it's a bad story out of the way, Scott. If, it, if it's true, it's bad. If it's not true, it's bad because these, these organizations have a long way to go to, to convince Canadians that, they're, that you know, why we fund them, why we, why we finance them, why we, why we people them with, with individuals, that they're doing good for Canada. Because right now the conclusion is that, you know, there's rocks at the core of these organizations and, uh, you know, why have them in the first place? Let's broaden what you just said, though, about the allegations and this kind of thing, because I, I firmly believe, I mean, I wholeheartedly believe that this is an important investigation to have. However, I think it's ultimately rather meaningless because everybody who went into this thing believing that the convoy was a bunch of evil, uh, treasonous government usurpers is going to come out of it believing that, and everybody who believed they were doing God's work is going to come out of it believing that, 
And I don't think that anything that is said, even if the report, the final report comes out and implicates one side or clears the other, I don't believe it honestly changes more than a half a dozen people's minds in this country. I sure you're right. I think that we're, and you know, we, we seem to be at a, at a part in our history where facts don't matter anymore, right? I mean, allegations have been made, and once the allegations are made, there are those who are going to reject them, you know, not waiting until the allegations are investigated, and there are those who are going to believe them, not waiting until the allegations are investigated. We seem to be at a point where we have people with very dogmatic positions on the side of the spectrum, and there's not a lot of, like, sort of middle room here. Like you said, you're either for the convoy or you're against the convoy, and nothing that comes out of your inquiry is going to change your mind. Which begs the question, why am I having an inquiry in the first place? I think it's an important inquiry, but if, you know, when all's said and done, it only, as you said, it only changes the minds of a couple of Canadians, then what's the point? And then, you know, mm. are we going to go down that road and look to our neighbors of the South, Scott? And they're even more, I think, you know, on opposite ends of the spectrum of we are, where they've got people completely polarized on various positions. I don't like to think that we here in Canada are a little more subtle than that. I'm still hopeful. I'm still, you know, glass half full kind of guy. But yeah, it, it, it is worrisome that we have these, these positions that are being entrenched, and nothing that anyone says can can move you from that position. Um, that's that's not a good thing for Canadian society. I wouldn't say. Okay, so uh, let me let me give one caveat to what I just said there, where I said I don't think anyone's position changes. If some piece of evidence was presented that was stunning and shocking and completely unexpected and blew the doors off the thing. Maybe, you know, if there was this giant, you know, surprise, maybe people's opinions change. Have you heard anything, though, that would rise to that in this that would dramatically change what people thought going in? Not so far. Um, So full disclosure, I I don't think the Emergencies Act was warranted in this case. I thought it was a very desperate move by the government to bring in some very powerful legislation that was not required given the circumstances. You know, and again, I draw the parallel that the antecedent to the Emergencies Act was the War Measures Act. And the last time that was invoked was during the FLQ crisis. And people had died. And, you know, bombs had gone off in Montreal. And a British trade representative had been kidnapped. And these are serious acts of violence. Nothing of what happened in Ottawa. The blockades, the noise, the diesel fumes, whatever, the ignorance, people, the, you know, worst behavior. None of that comes even close to what happened in Quebec in 1970. So, no, I, I don't support the um, the use of the Emergencies Act. I, um, I, I can't see, unless you come up with solid intelligence that there was an actual plot to, you know, set off a bomb in a parliament or kill somebody or whatever kind of thing, my opinion is not going to change because I think that governments have a responsibility to be honest with their citizenry and, and to use very, very powerful pieces of legislation in the absolute last moment where everything else has been tried and failed. And yet we're still hearing that there were efforts made even right up to the point where the act was invoked, where there were, you know, plans to, you know, tow the trucks, reach an agreement, et cetera, et cetera. That's what I'm waiting for, essentially. Um, I, I, I think I'm kind of I'm, I'm open-minded. Um, I've been pretty, you know, dogmatic to date, and I don't think the act was required. But if something solid, you know, more than an allocation, something much, much more solid comes comes through, I'm certainly willing to change my mind and say, yes, the government acted wisely, and it had no choice but to invoke the Emergencies Act in February of this year. Phil Gursky, President of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst. I very much appreciate your time today. Thanks for doing this. You too. Take care, Scott. Have a nice weekend. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. 
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.